Once again, everyone, I wish it was nothing but good news. But embedded with the good news this week is the acknowledgement that there just isn't enough out there for families dealing with autism. And the whole thing around pharmacological treatments is a complicated mess. First, there are no FDA-approved medications for the core symptoms of autism. That doesn't mean that physicians aren't giving medications to treat the core symptoms. However, it just means that none have met scientific rigor high enough to be called effective and safe for the core symptoms. Drug companies are still trying, though, and a lot of work needs to be done to determine how to measure improvement in kids with autism. For example, until recently, there was no actual validated measure to understand anxiety in people with autism. Is it the same as people without autism? You can't necessarily measure it in the same way if it's not the same. Last year, a group out of Drexel University validated something called the Anxiety Disorder Interview Schedule for Autism, which is going to make this easier. Same with social communication. The authors of the gold standard instruments to detect social and communication problems in people with autism, called the ADOS, will tell you themselves it was never designed to measure change over time. So those same researchers are developing new measures to detect change in social communication function that are showing promise. And more good news, the outcome measures are becoming more patient-centered. In other words, the researchers help work with the families in thinking about what are the most debilitating symptoms for each patient, and does that medication help that behavior? Recently, a group of autism researchers led by Larry Scahill at Emory University looked at methylphenidate, which is an ADHD medication in people with autism. So instead of using traditional outcome measures, the studies got clinicians to ask parents to nominate the child's two biggest problems. Then the clinician and the parent discussed what those were, how it affected the family, the educational settings, and other aspects of daily life, and what improvement would actually look like. These were readjusted at each visit, and then a different clinician independently reviewed the parent narratives to see if the behaviors actually improved over time. Frankly, I'm oversimplifying this. This is a totally new way of looking at outcome, and there are a lot of devils in the details here. But the good news is, is that clinicians were consistent in how they rated improvement or no improvement using this new measure. Parents saw some improvement in their child's behavior after the high doses of methylphenidate, and this also corresponded to the standardized measure called the aberrant behavior checklist. So there is validity in this. I'm not trying to say the results were perfect, but this is a new way of understanding and treating problem behaviors, specifically in this study, children with autism. And yes, it needs more work, but it's promising and it's good news. I also know that families and doctors are trying everything under the sun from camel milk to these ADHD medications and everything in between to treat different symptoms of autism. For this podcast, though, I'm going to continue to focus on the pharmacological medications, that is, those prescribed by a doctor, and even if they're not approved by the FDA, they're being studied with some scientific rigor. Again, the good news is that there are two medications, Risperdal and Abilify, which are used to treat irritability and aggression in people with autism. The other good news is that other medications are being tested and that they're not just being used in isolation. Doctors are now looking at these medications in the presence and absence of real-life behavioral interventions to determine how and if they improve behavior by themselves or together with behavioral treatments. 
For example, a couple of years ago, a group of researchers looked at the combined effects of risperidone and parent training to improve adaptive behavior in individuals with autism who also had serious behavioral problems. The good news is that the combination treatment had a significant advantage for behavioral symptoms, irritability, and hyperactivity, even with a lower medication dose. After about a year, the effects weren't as great and the medication needed to be adjusted. And unfortunately, with parent training, not all families continued their at-home behavioral mediated interventions either, which is completely understandable. Not all parents are equipped or understand the mechanisms or the important components of parent-mediated interventions at home, and it's very, very difficult to continue these after the intensive training has ceased. Parents like the combination rather than just the medication alone, reiterating the need to make sure they get the support they need. So other good news, well, new drugs are coming out. Recently, a study was published that showed the very early effectiveness of a small study of a vasopressin 1A antagonist. Vasopressin is a hormone released by the pituitary gland, just like oxytocin, and we all know oxytocin is being studied for autism. In an early study in boys with high-functioning autism, a single dose administered intravenously improved social cognition. Clearly, something other than an intravenous administration is going to have to be developed for this to have any chance of helping a larger number of people. And the study was done in men and adults only, so more needs to be done, but it's always good to have multiple doors to open that treat autism. All right, so the bad, I kind of covered that. The outcome measures are not great, and there's no approved medications to treat core symptoms. So let's just jump to the ugly. One of the ugly parts of pharmacological treatments for autism is that they have side effects. As one example, Risperdone and Abilify have been associated with weight gain. And when I talk about weight gain, I'm not talking about a few pounds you put on every once in a while. I'm talking about in the most severe category, they end up getting shift into what's considered obese. So they need to add another medication. In this case, doctors are looking at something called metformin. Metformin is a metabolic drug used to treat type 2 diabetes. Parents hate this. You can understand why. They, nobody really wants to put their kids on medication to begin with, and they only do it because they have to. And now they have to give their kid another medication to treat the side effects of the first medication. Metformin works. It does reduce weight gain, but moderately. And the kids seem to reach a plateau in terms of the reduction in weight gain over time. It's not a long-term solution, and yes, it's very ugly. Also kind of ugly, but also very interesting, two new studies recently looked at who were the most likely to receive medication. In the first study, they looked at inpatients who are on average prescribed three to four medications, both on intake and discharge. What are they taking? Well, they're taking sleep medication, anti-seizure medication, antipsychotic medication, and yes, drugs to treat weight gain caused by antipsychotic medications. I'll give you that inpatients who end up in an inpatient setting are more likely to be on medications. I also wanted to look at what about non-inpatient settings, like from a developmental pediatrics practice. So another recent study combined data from three developmental pediatrics practices, and of course they found a lot of variation. In one site, almost 50% of kids were on meds, and another site, 4%. It ends up being about 37% across each site, which is way lower than what you would see in an inpatient setting. So in an inpatient setting, it's like 91% of them are on medications. Also, comorbidities played a big role. Those with ADHD, sleep problems, and anxiety were more likely to be prescribed medication. 
You can understand why, given that these medications are used to treat sleep and seizures. But there was also something called developmental delay that was a risk factor for being on medication. I'm not sure how that fits into medication, but it needs further study. In that study, what was most interesting was that how insurance played into medication prescription. For young children, three to five years old, those on Medicaid were more likely to be prescribed medication compared to those with private insurance. This trend was not seen in any other age category, so I'm going to be honest. I think it needs further study. I'm not sure it can be replicated, but I'm, and I'm also not going to just dive into how they should be interpreted. I hope this podcast has given you a sense of the good, the bad, and one bit of the ugly about medication use and autism. Thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you next week when we'll talk about all the new Autism Centers for Excellence Awards, what they're doing, and how they're going to help people with autism.